The Cronenberg Concerto by Keith Farrell. It should have been a golden age. The 80s should have been the most blood-red golden age ever for the movies Lee loved and lived for. But it wasn't. Even after a midnight movie, the theaters today were too clean for him. The seats were too comfortable. The popcorn, not that he ever ordered popcorn anymore, too fresh. The floors weren't sticky, the bathrooms weren't stained, the screens weren't torn and spotted. The projectors were too reliable, not to mention the projectionists. Lee couldn't remember the last time a film had broken or a projector bulb burned out. The audiences were not the audiences Lee wished to sit with. They offered no companionship, no shared experience. Their attendance brought neither prospect nor potential. Like the theaters they filled, the audiences were too clean. The movies themselves were too clean. Not that he wanted filth. Not sex filth, anyway. There was nothing prurient about either his interest or his attendance. Lee disliked the nudity and increasingly explicit sexuality that began creeping onto the screen during the 70s and became a torrent by the turn of the new decade. He came to see skin flayed, not bared, yet most of the movies now were more bare than bloody. That wasn't what he had come to see since he was a kid in the 60s, when the movies he loved were born. He'd been present at their birth, and he'd watched them grow over the 20 years since. He'd seen them all, though only a very few achieved the greatness that earned his highest tribute and homage. There were nothing in the theaters for Lee anymore, and yet he still came. He could not stop or would not. He stood in line. Sometimes they were long. Sometimes the theaters sold out their midnight shows, and not just for Rocky Horror, that abomination, that musical mockery of all that drew him. All that he came for, all that he had drawn him for decades. He knew what he came to find, and not just on the screen. What he came for was what he had been coming for since he was 10, yet found so rarely on the screens anymore. Nor was there much of what he wanted in the seats around him, even when a theater was full. Some of the other patrons noticed Lee, though not many. Lost in their own heads, most of the heads addled by pot or worse, another gift of the 60s that persisted and proliferated into the 80s. Sometimes they even burned a joint in the theater. The odor made Lee want to throw up and sometimes... He did. Some who noticed him looked away. One or two would stare. Occasionally, he would overhear a couple out for a Friday or Saturday night date, whisper to each other about that poor man. The ticket booth attendants noticed too, and the ticket takers inside. 
How could they not when he fumbled with his wallet or extended his ticket between the two fingers that were all that remained on his right hand? He ignored their whispers and paid no attention to their averted gazes. Let them whisper and look away. They weren't what he came to see. But less and less did the screens offer what he came to see either. <laughs> Some golden age. Had he given 20 years of himself for this, standing in line at a nice theater with a nice, if stoned audience, to see a movie that whatever its title and advertising promised would be nice in its own way, filled with special effects that everyone in the theater knew weren't real? It was the way of the world now, and Lee hated it. This was not what he'd lived for since the summer of 63. That summer was the best of his life. He'd always heard you never forget your first time, and that summer proved it. There were two theaters in the small town where his family lived when he was 10. The movie time was the respectable theater, spotless and inviting on the main street of the town's business district. Sometimes Lee's mom or dad would drop him and his brother off there for a Saturday matinee, a Disney flick, cowboy movie, or a kiddie comedy. Nothing was at risk in any of those movies. Nothing in any of them spoke to Lee. The only theater the suburb was in a bad neighborhood 14 blocks from Lee's house. Lee's mother never dropped her children off there and avoided even driving through that part of town. The superb was a little grindhouse fallen on hard times, even for a grindhouse. Lee was 10 when he snuck out of the house on a Sunday afternoon, his parents napping after the heavy Sunday dinner that followed an equally heavy Sunday at the church his mother insisted they attend. Lee dozed through the sermon. As usual, he had stayed up late Saturday night to catch that week's terror theater on Channel 8. The channel didn't come in well, and Lee had to watch with the sound turned all the way down to keep his parents from waking. They wouldn't approve of him being up so late, and they sure wouldn't approve of what he was watching. Lee didn't approve of what he was watching either. In the first place, the show had a host, some local TV weatherman who dressed up on Saturday nights in a top hat and black cape, fake fangs giving him a lisp, fake Bella Lugosi accent giving Lee the willies and not out of fear or anything close to it. For his Saturday night dress-up duties, the weatherman called himself Dr. U.N. Dertaker. His spiel was as corny as his name. Lee hardly listened to the clown's patter of recycled jokes. Frankenstein, Wolfman, and Dracula walk into a bar. And horrid puns. The Wolfman's number one with a bullet, a silver bullet. He just wanted the guy to get on with the movies. The movies were what Lee stayed up for. Most of them weren't worth it, not even close. Third-rate B-movies from the 40s. The Ape, The Mad Monster, The 50s, Bride of Gorilla, The Giant Gila Monster, and occasionally something from the 60s. The Brain That Wouldn't Die, The Beast of Yucca Flats. Bad movies even by the standards of bad movies. But Lee stayed up crouching close to the TV, wiggling the rabbit ears for better reception, hoping for some sort of reward for his effort. Occasionally, he found what he wanted. Terror Theater's syndicated package of movies providing the freaks or horror of Dracula for every 15 or 20 attack of the crab monsters or creature with the atom brain. It wasn't enough, and the good movies were censored even before the prints got to the station. One or two of them, notably Horror of Dracula, 
and the other Hammer films that somehow found their way into the rotation. Raised an outcry from the concerned parents groups, resulting in an on-air apology from none other than Dr. Yuen Dertaker, who proved as unconvincingly in contrition as comedy. The terror theater movie, The Night Before the Day Lee's Life Changed, was The Neanderthal Man, a 1953 piece of crap, but Lee stayed with it all the way. It was a discipline with him, not yet a ritual. That would come later. The fact that the movie was made the year he was born played a part two. He was determined to see every horror movie made in 1953, and he was delighted to be able to check the Neanderthal man off his list. During the commercials and the weatherman's awful hosting, Lee planned his Sunday escape. He'd seen the Superbs ad in the paper that morning, and it was all he thought about. He had to look hard to find the ad hidden in the sports pages, which held little interest for Lee. He had no idea why he was looking in that section that Saturday, but on those rare occasions when he allowed himself to feel that there was some order and purpose to the universe, Lee thought he must have guided to it. Mostly he felt it was the luckiest break of his life. The ad's headline grabbed him and had not let him go. Nothing so appalling in the annals of horror. He had to stop for a moment to think about what appalling might mean. The more he thought, the more convinced he was that it meant that that kind of movie he'd looked for his whole life had come to town. He was going to see it. He was going to see it tomorrow. There was a three o'clock show, and if he played things right, he would be there to see for himself just what appalling meant. His parents stretched out for their naps after the big Sunday lunch. Lee waited as long as he could to leave and still made it to the suburb. He barely got there in time and was still breathing hard after chaining his bike to a lamppost just down the street. His shirt was sticky with sweat and his heart pounded wildly as he stepped up to the ticket booth. The old guy in the booth was chewing on the stub of an unlit cigar. He looked at Lee and yawned. (sighs) No kids allowed, he said. Lee expected that and had a plan. Tickets were 50 cents. He pushed $2 bills, damp from his sweaty jeans at the man and said, No change, please. That guy got the guy's attention. He shot a glance up and down the street. There was no one in sight. He took Lee's two bucks and said, Anybody catches you, you snuck in. Got me? Lee nodded, took his ticket, and entered the theater. It was dim in the lobby, not like the bright entrance to the movie time. A bulb flickered over the concession stand whose glass front was smudged. The guy from the ticket booth came in and asked if Lee wanted anything. Lee shook his head. That $2 was all he had. The guy sighed and gestured toward the door to the auditorium. Get in and keep your mouth shut. Lee walked to the door and pulled it open. The auditorium was dimmer than the lobby, and Lee waited a moment for his eyes to adjust. When he could see, he walked slowly down the right side of the theater the soles of his heads making a squeaky sound with each step. There were only three other people in the theater, one of them snoring. Lee found a seat far from them and close to the front. He sat down just before the screen came to life. Within minutes, Lee knew what appalling meant. He'd never seen anything like this and soon learned 
that he had never seen anything like it because there had never been anything like it before. This wasn't terror theater crap. This wasn't Frankenstein or the Wolfman or even Freaks. This wasn't Hammer Horror with its English accents and clean clothes and civilized acting. This was the real thing, realer than anything Lee had ever experienced. This was what he wanted all along. He hadn't known he could want anything so much. By the time the movie ended, Lee was ready to stay through it again, to stay through all the showings, but he knew he couldn't. He had to get home. As the last of the movie faded, he had to pay his tribute and rush from the theater, unchained his bike, and pedaled furiously home. His parents were upset when he came in, but he planned for this too and told them he was late because he had a bike accident. He was able to calm them down without giving any hint of where he was or what he had seen. They wouldn't understand. They would be appalled. Lee kept his mouth shut and not just for his parents' sake. He didn't sleep that night. When he closed his eyes, he was able to relive every minute of Blood Feast. He wanted to see it again, but it left town before his mother could even think about letting him get back on his bike. He didn't argue. He kept his mouth shut and his eyes open, searching for the Superb's ads. Every Saturday when the new movies came out, Superb came through twice more that year, Dementia 13 and Paranoiac. Though neither came close to giving Lee what Blood Feast provided, neither inspired him to worship. He saw Paranoiac, a decent British flick, but not nearly enough blood. Superb closed in the summer of 64, but that was okay. His family moved to the city that summer, and the city had more theaters, three of them grinders, one of which he could reach on his bike. The other two required bus rides. Mostly, he came home disappointed, his desire for worship undiminished by unconsummated... Oh, that was right. He was learning to live with disappointment. It was the fulfillment of all the sweeter... When he did receive a gift from the screen, Lee found a few of those gifts over the course of the 60s, including two more from the master, 2000 Maniacs, and best of all, Color Me, Blood Red. He honored them with worship and ritual, almost as good, even though Black and White was Night of the Living Dead, although by the time that came out, the potheads were coming out too. The deepening recessive 70s and the collapse of the inner cities that came with them were boom times for Lee. The three downtown theaters that had drawn date night couples to Doris Day and Rock Hudson and families to Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music and everybody to John Wayne or Jerry Lewis or Elvis movies found themselves unable to attract even a fraction of their former audiences. Those audiences moved to the suburbs and took their moving going habits with them. A night out at the movies meant a night out at the mall or the multiplex where you could take your choice of four or five or even six movie screens. Doris Day and Rock Hudson gave way to Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Elvis yielded the box office to Burt Reynolds. Jerry Lewis to Steve Martin. John Wayne persisted. None of them showed up on downtown screens anymore. Lacking a respectable trade, the downtown theater operators turned to less than respectable movies. The Rialto did good business with black exploitation flicks, which held little interest for Lee, although he did catch Blackula, but its horrors didn't particularly catch him. Sugar Hill zombies had their moments, and he caught in on a double feature with Black Godfather, which wasn't his cup of blood at all. He had far better luck at the Nevis and the Showplace. Built in the 50s, the Nevis specialized in kung fu films. 
but an occasional horror movie crept in. When one did, Lee was there. Most of the horrors that played at the Nevis were crap, and the rituals Lee performed there were minor, though never perfunctory. The showplace, though, was a palace from the 20s. For a half a century, it was the biggest and fanciest and most elegant theater in town and boasted the biggest screen in the whole state. It hung on until 69, but when it went, it went fast. Its owners dumping the theater for a song to a couple of kids in their 20s who looked the other way when their audiences toked up. Some said you could buy pot at the concession stand along with popcorn and candy. Lee didn't know whether that was true, and he didn't care. The showplace booked films that drew that sort of audience, and some of them were films whose gifts drew Lee. It was at the showplace where the 70s started for Lee with one of the greatest of those gifts, Bloodthirsty Butchers, a work of genius in Lee's eyes, almost beyond belief in the purity of what it brought to the enormous showplace screen. He felt the way he had when he saw Blood Feast. This was what he was looking for. This was what he worshipped, a teenager now, driving and better able to get out and around and see movies more than once. Lee saved his ritual for his third viewing of Butchers and timed it to match the scene that almost inspired him. Once he was able to drive, he had a long, fitful relationship with drive-ins. There were five in the city when his family moved there, but only three were still in operation when he turned 16 and got his driver's license. He went to each of them when a title promised the possibility of worship. He found what he was looking for only a couple of times at drive-ins, most notably a showing of I Spit on Your Grave in 79, when he was in his mid-twenties by then, living on his own, able to see whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. The movie had too much sex for Lee's taste, but it had blood too, and he judged it worthy of ritual. But there was an emptiness to ritual performed alone in a car with other audience members sealed in their own cars, insulated. The drive-in closed later that year, and Lee never went to an outdoor movie again. And now it was the 80s, the golden age that wasn't. The drive-ins were gone, the Nevis and the Rialto, and even the showplace were all gone too. The Rialto raised, the showplace shuttered, the Nevis converted into a video store of all things. The plexes were all that remained, and while they showed more horror movies than ever, fewer and fewer of them offered anything for Lee to worship. The movies were in many ways bloodier than ever, but it was Hollywood blood. The acting was far better than ever, but that was because the movie starred actors, people you could see in other movies that weren't horror. The directors were better than ever because they were film school graduates, professionals. It was the professionalism that bothered Lee the most. There was nothing authentic about most of the movies that promised horror and blood and gore. There was nothing for Lee in the Halloweens or the Friday the 13ths or any of the rest of the stupid teen massacre movies with their programmed hackings and slashings. There was even less in the exorcists and poltergeists and shinings with their huge budgets and big name actors. It was all product manufactured on assembly lines to fill screens in clean, well-lit theaters. No different, really, from Elvis or Burt Reynolds or John Wayne movies. There was nothing to inspire Lee. There was nothing that spoke to him. There was nothing appalling in the way that the real things appalled and lifted him out of himself. Real things were still being made, but the realest of them never made it to theaters. They went straight to tape. Tape was how he saw Cannibal Holocaust a couple of years ago, and that 
was real. But while video could provide what he looked for, watching it on television couldn't. He never performed his rituals at home. The ritual was meant for theaters, and not the sorts of theaters that played movies these days. Nevertheless, he took his place in line at the movieplex. He had some hope as he waited to buy his ticket. The guy who made the movie had been real once, and one of his movies, Rabbit, inspired a ritual. But that was in 77, six years ago, and Lee caught it at a near, nearby The Last Gasp of the Nevis. Since then, the director had gotten more respectable and less real. Lee had seen it happen before. Just last year, the guy who made Texas Chainsaw, one of the all-time greats, and one of the greatest ritual experiences of Lee's life, even though the movie had less blood than you'd think, made poltergeist Hollywood crap all the way through and not a scare in it. Lee worried that the guy who made Rabbit would go the same. Two years ago, he turned out for scanners, and while it had its moments, Lee thought it would be a ritual for the ages if he could make his head explode. It wasn't worthy of even a small ritual. Maybe tonight would be different, he thought as he moved to the ticket booth. One for Videodrome, he said, extending a tin between his two fingers. As always, when he spoke, there was a reaction. He caught a flash of concern or revulsion from the girl selling tickets. He paid her no more mind than he did the kid behind him who looked at the left side of Lee's face and whispered, Van Gogh? To his date, who shushed him even as she laughed. Lee went into the theater and found his seat. The movie was better than Scanners, though not nearly real enough for a ritual, but it gave Lee something to think about. With its vision of video consuming the world, how could it not? Video was too easy, too convenient. You didn't have to work to see a video. You didn't have to make an effort to seek out what you wanted. You didn't have to go into a dark place to see it. There was no ritual to watching a video. It wasn't real. Without irony, he drove downtown and stopped at what the Marquis now proclaimed, was Nevy's video. Whoever owned it put some money and effort to making the place appealing. The store was nearly as clean and well-lit as a multiplex at the mall and even had a concession counter, its glass front polished and free of smudges. The popcorn smelled fresh. The video selection was broad and eclectic. Lee walked to the horror section and drew a breath as he scanned the titles. There, among the phony stuff, stood video cassette cases holding the films he'd worshipped for 20 years. Even encased in plastic, they spoke to him, giving their own thanks for the gifts he gave them. He'd bitten off the tip of his tongue as he watched Blood Feast, and it left a little bit of on the floor at the suburb. He smuggled a razor-sharp knife into his second viewing of Bloodthirsty Butchers and used it to remove his left nipple at precisely the moment when a breast was revealed beneath the crust of a meat pie. He'd cut off the first of his fingers at Living Dead with pruning shears, and to add flavor to the homage, he chewed on the finger a bit before depositing it on the floor of the nevis. He hacked off his ear at Texas Chainsaw and dropped it on the Showtime sticky carpet where he was almost positive a rat carried it off. He'd sliced open his armpit at Rabbit and let the blood soak into the seat next to him. He looked at the other titles and thought of what they'd given him and all the parts of himself he'd given them in return. All of the movies that spoke were here. Their voices imprisoned on videotape now, no more real than anything else in the store. People would rent them and take them home and play them, perhaps rewinding the most appalling parts, but laughing as they did so. Because it wouldn't 
be real to them. They wouldn't be appalled. They wouldn't be amused. It was too easy. He thought of the movie he just saw and realized it was only going to get easier. There would come a time, we thought, with a clarity so sudden and complete that it took it for a revelation. There would come a time when you wouldn't have to go to a store, much less a theater, to see these movies. They would come straight to you at home somehow, beamed right at you like something on Star Trek. They would be even less real than they were on tape. There was nothing he could do to stop it. He knew that much. The world he belonged to was no longer real and never would be again. He felt a sense of loss almost as profound in its devastating way as the sense of exhalation he'd felt seeing the movies in a dark, sticky, Maladorous theaters. Where they were there, they were real, where they belonged, where he belonged. After a moment, Lee stepped into the restroom where he tore the nail from one of his fingers. He dropped it on the floor in front of the horror section. It was not an act of worship. Lee left the store without renting anything. All right, so I chose to share the Cronenberg Concerto by Keith Farrell because I thought that it was an interesting idea about uh, what we as horror fans uh, give to the horror movies we see on the big screen, in our little screens, in our living rooms, on our phones, on our tablets, and our laptops. What is it that we're exchanging? It's the fear. It's the emotions that come with a horror film. And so I thought this was a really cool uh, metaphorical approach for the idea uh, of uh, an exchange of energies. And in this case, Lee, the character of this short story, was offering physical things from his body. So it played really nicely into that body horror that we know Cronenberg is famous for. So you can check out this story from, it came from the multiplex, 80s Midnight Chillers. I'll read the, the back synopsis. Welcome to tonight's feature presentation brought to you by an unholy alliance of our spellcasters at Hex Publishers and Movie Mages at the Colorado Festival of Horror. Please be advised that all emergency exits have been locked for this special nostalgia-curdled premiere of death. From crinkling celluloid to ferocious flesh from the silver screen to your hammering heart behold as a swarm of werewolves, serial killers, Satanists, elder gods, aliens, ghosts, and unclassified monsters are loosed upon your auditorium. Relax and allow our ushers to help you with your buckets of popcorn and blood, your ticket stubs and severed limbs, your comfort candy and body bags. Kick back and scream as you settle into a fate worse than hell. Tonight's director's cut is guaranteed to slash you apart. I like this book because it's one that you can come back to and then go and read something else and then come back to it again for that multiplex midnight chiller motif that it offers so well so reach out to hex superior story uh this anthology i found online and you can check it out in your uh your physical horror media uh, places where you pick up your horror content 
As always, you can reach out to Fatal Follower Presents a podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Horror Amino, and you can reach out to me at Fatal Follower Presents at Gmail. Stay safe, stay spooky, and continue consuming horror all day, all the time. Bye-bye.